Welcome to the Study Rooms podcast, a series of teachings from the Study Rooms class about the Bible and its effect on our daily lives. We hope it blesses you. Ready your hearts and minds for God to teach you. It is important that you know who you are and who you are in Jesus Christ. This is called Identity. In this episode, we begin the three-part series on our identity in Jesus. Let's join Daniel Addo for today's class. We're talking today about who you are in Christ. Who you are in Christ. And I have here discovering your true worth, identity, and value. And when Eva told me about this topic, I was really excited. Very, very excited because I think it's so important. But I also think, and maybe you agree with me, tell me that a phrase like this can very easily become Christianese. Okay? I don't know if you've heard that word Christianese before, but by, by Christianese, I'm referring to, you know, Christian lingo that has lost its true essence because of overuse. So I've been in church all my life, and one of the things that happens is that every year or every few years, there's a new Christian lingo that is popular that everybody is saying and everybody is using. And it is not that this lingo doesn't have meaning. It's just that it's been so overused and passed down over time that it has lost its true meaning. So if you ask the people using those um, lingo, what does this really mean? they may not be able to give you um, an answer. So I'm thinking about things like, you know, I'm in the spirit. What does that really mean? Does that mean that you are floating in the air, you know, you're just in the spirit floating? Sometimes we use some of these um, um, expressions, but what does it really mean? When you press the person and say, what are you really talking about? You know, so we have these things that we just say, it is well, I am blessed and highly lifted. And, and those things really have meaning, but they, they've, they've lost their true essence because of overuse. I remember one time, you know, a lady had lost her, her husband in church and my dad was doing the pastor thing, you know, he went to her house and the woman was really crying. And then he said to her, I know how you feel. Now, most people hear that and just keep quiet, but this woman was very bold. She said, no, you don't know how I feel. You know, you've not lost your thing. You say, you know how I feel. So my dad was stuck. And in that moment, he said, it is well. I said, no, it is not well. I just lost my husband. What do you mean it is well? You know, so that, that's Christian lingo for you. We just say all these things sometimes out of place, out of timing, and they are devoid of their true meaning. And that can happen with this phrase, I know who I am in Christ. You know, it can become one of those um, things we say, we sing it in our songs, you know, thank God for Sinatra, and she has made it so popular. But the question we really want to say to ask today is, do you really know who you are? Is that really true? Has it just become Christianese? No, I know who I am in Christ. Do we really, really know who we are in Christ? Because if we do, many of the insecurities and the fears and the guilt that we carry around with us, we will not if we truly know who we are in Christ. So one of my goals today, or my primary goal, I would say, is to remove this phrase from the realm of Christianese and bring it into our real life, 
you know, let's remove it from Amorbid and Bauer and all the songs we sing and let's let's really think about it, you know, and um, bring it to our lived experience. Again, like I said, this is a very, very important topic and we should deal with it. Um, and I think one of the reasons why it's very important that we deal with this phrase is because um, the phrase who I am in Christ deals with identity. I'm going ahead of myself here. Yes, it deals with identity. It deals with identity. And now you know, identity drives behavior. Identity drives confidence. If you don't know who you are, people will define it for you. If you don't know who you are, you would listen to what everybody says you are. If you don't know who you are, you will go through this life lost. And so it's important that we deal with this phrase because it deals with the questions of identity. Now, I think that there are two levels of identity. There's a first level that deals with our identifiers. If I ask you who you are, you might tell me your name, um, where you come from, what you do, maybe things you have achieved. That's one level of identity, the things that identify you, you know. Um, like I said, your name, your job, your family name, maybe if you're American, your social security number, those are identifiers. So that's one level of identity. That's an easy level of identity. But when I speak of identity today, I'm really speaking about a deeper level of identity. I'm referring to identity as um, the core of how you determine your value, your dignity, and your worth. So I'm not quite dealing with the first level. I'm dealing more with this second deeper level of identity. How do you determine that you're a person of value? How do you determine that you're a person of work? How do you determine that you're a person of dignity? Your identity is what you're building your life on. Your identity is the thing or the person that you're looking to, to give you a sense of worth, to give you a sense of value, to give you a sense of personhood. That's what your identity is. And we are all building our life on something. It may be different for you. It may be different for me. For some of us, it's career. We're saying, you know, if I have this job, then I am valuable. If I'm dating this person, or if I'm married, or if I have kids, all of us are right now building our lives on something or someone. And that is the core of your identity. The thing that makes you feel like you have value, dignity, and worth is your identity. And so that's what I mean when I speak of um, identity. Now, let's, let's look at these questions. I call these questions of identity. And whatever you fill the blank with is um, the thing or the person or whatever that you're looking to for your sense of identity. So if I have blank... I would feel that my life is worth living. I want you to think now, what, what is that for you? What is the blank? What is that thing that you feel, if I can have this, then I would feel that my life is worth living. The second one says, I feel that I am a person worthy of respect because of blank. Like I said, we all have different things that we're filling those blanks with. The third one is God loves and accepts me because of blank. What's that in your life? What's the thing that you're saying? It's because of this that God loves me. It's because of this that God accepts me. 
these are questions to help us locate in our lives. I, I want to do a kind of diagnosis for all of us to think about this thing about identity. Remember, we're not doing Christian news. We're trying to really think, what is the source of my greatest pride and joy? The source of my greatest pride and joy comes from having been dash. Now, I know that because we're all religious people, we've been primed to just say, oh, Jesus. Oh, if I have Jesus, I would feel that my life is worth living. Oh, I feel that I am a person worthy of respect because of Jesus. But if we're honest, if you're really honest with yourself, in the dead of night when there's nobody there in, in your heart of hearts, you find yourself thinking, if James can just love me, or if I can just get that job, or if I just reach that number on social media, or if I can just have a family and have children of my own, or if I can just start that ministry. The truth is, if we, we, we tell ourselves the truth, and I'm being honest with you, that if I, if I had to fill this blank, Religiously, I would say Jesus, but in reality, in lived experience, in the dead of night, there are things that tug on my heart that I'm looking to to give me a sense of worth, to give me a sense of value, to validate me, to make me feel I am worthy of respect, I'm worthy of God's love, to make me feel like I have pride and joy. That's what we mean when we say identity. Not your identifiers, but the answers to these questions. Let's look at some deeper questions of identity. What is the source of your greatest sadness in life? Think about it. Think about it. What's the thing that you have lost or don't have that brings you great sadness? Think about it. I'm, I'm giving you time to really think. What are the things you find yourself daydreaming about? When you have nothing to think about, when you don't have to be thinking about anything, what is the thing that automatically jumps in your mind. I'll tell you mine. I see myself on stage preaching to millions of people and they're they are clapping and saying, man, this guy can't preach. <laughs> I see myself singing or, you know, in front of people. These are the things that we're building our identity on. What want people to know about you. you. You find a way to sneak it in, you know, into conversation. Nobody brought it up, but you want to make sure people know these things about you. So, you know, you find a way to bring it into the conversation. We're talking about cars, but you bring in that thing so people can know, you know, I know this person. Oh, I just spoke to this pastor. Or, oh, I was talking to that, you know, um, guy, some popular person. What is the first thing you want people to know about you? Now, this is a very big one. What are you most jealous or envious of others for? Let me tell you, your envy, the thing that makes you angry at other people, will reveal to you the thing that you're building your identity on. You may not be jealous of people for children. You may not be jealous of them for family, but they have that career. Oof. <laughs> that one pains you. I heard a story, you know, one woman uh, lost her marriage. She got a divorce and her friend was, you know, just like, she was fine. She was fine. Nothing, there was nothing wrong with her. She was fine. Um, but she lost her job and it really pained her. That's because for her, her job was an idol and marriage was just, you know, married. So 
you want to find what you're building your identity on, honestly answer these questions. What is it that if taken from you will pose the greatest threat to your existence? <laughs> That's a harsh question, isn't it? And then finally, what dominates most of your prayers? Lord, give me X. It's Tim Keller that says, you know, the thing you pray to God most for is your true God. And God is just your apparatus to getting that thing. First time I heard him say that, that thing knocks my socks off. He says, if I'm always going to God saying, Lord, I just want James. I just want this. Oh, Lord, just give me this. Then that thing I want from God is my true God. And just my apparatus to getting that thing. So we're dealing with deep questions of identity here. Very deep questions of identity. So the answer to these questions will reveal to you what you're building your identity on. The things that give you a sense of value, satisfaction, and fulfillment. And the answer to those questions will also reveal your idols. Now, I know many of us, when we hear the word idols, we think of you know, the Old Testament and all those images that they would bow down to. Or, you know, Nigerian things, they would have carved something with um, wood and, you know, the bow down and say, Isakaba, something. And that's where our minds go with idols. But, Idols are not just objects you bow down to, but the object of your deepest love and affection. Idols first come from the heart before it's an object that you bow down to. An idol is the person, is anyone or thing to which or whom you say, wait, I think I skipped. An idol is a person or thing you're looking to for value, fulfillment, and worth. It may be a relationship, it may be marriage, it may be um, ministry, it may be money, it may be fame, but it's the personal thing that you're looking to for a sense of value, fulfillment, and worth. Um, An idol is anything apart from Christ on which you are building your identity. Money, romantic relationships, fame, ministry. And you're going to hear me talk about this man a lot because he's he's, he's been my primary pastor for a few Yeah, now Tim Keller. I recommend everything he says and writes. (laughs) But he says, um, an idol is very often a good thing that we make into a God thing. So these are good things. Don't get me wrong. Money is not bad. I would love to have money. Um, Fame, there's nothing inherently wrong with fame. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be married. There is nothing wrong with, with wanting to be in ministry. But when you take these good things and turn them into God things that you worship and you say, fulfill me, give me a sense of identity, make me feel like a person, quench my thirst, make me feel valuable, that's idolatry. Anything that has replaced God as your sense of value and personhood and uh, and worth is an idol. So we look to our idols for the things only God can give us. We're saying to them, redeem me, save me. You know, or look into our lover and say, if I have you, then I am somebody. That's an idol. <laughs> an idol is anything or anyone to which or whom you say, if I have you, I am somebody. So let's see scriptures. I don't want you to think that I'm just making up this stuff. You know, that's very important. Like I said, my authority is scriptures. Um, I want to show you from the Old Testament that idols begin in the heart. Before Israel ever bowed down to any object, their hearts were drawn to something. So Ezekiel 6, speaking about Israel's captivity, 
those who escape will remember me, that's God speaking, how I have been grieved by their adulterous hearts, which have turned away from me, and by their eyes, which have lusted after their idols. So you see the language of marriage here, that God is to be our one true love. He has come into a covenant of marriage with us. But whenever we have these idols, we are in a sense, um, always Ezekiel 6.9, Ezekiel 6.9. In a sense, what we're doing is we are lusting after other things, that we are kind of cheating on our husband God. <laughs> you know, so these idols are objects of affection, things that have grabbed our hearts. So, you know, Israel often bowed down to the bowels, so Americans would say bowels or whatever. Um, but before they physically bowed down to, to Baal, their hearts were drawn to fertility. Baal was the fertility God. They were saying, give us fruitfulness. So they wanted fruitfulness more than God. They didn't want God. They wanted to have rain and fruitfulness. So he says here that they, it was an adulterous heart. It was not just that they bowed down to something. It was that their hearts had shifted from God as the focus of their identity. And they wanted these idols. They lost it after other things. And there's an old a New Testament example, Colossians 3, 5. Colossians 3, 5 is the next one. Um, it says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Now, that's crazy. Greed, which is idolatry. Again, when we think of idols, we think of an object we bow down to. But Paul is saying greed is idolatry, that you can love money so much and so look to your bank account for value and affirmation that money becomes a god. It becomes an alternate god. Remember Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, where Jesus speaks about you can either serve God or money. He says you can either love and be devoted to money. In other words, he uses the language of worship for money, which is quite interesting because we don't think of ourselves as worshiping money. But what he's saying is that if money ever becomes to you a source of value where you can do anything to get it and you feel like if I can just have, if you find it difficult to part with money because you love money so much, which is greed, then money is an idol. So we're saying that the, the scriptures don't only speak of idols as physical objects. They speak of idols as things that our hearts are drawn to, devoted to the thing that we are looking for identity in. The play again, remember, we're not just speaking about identifiers. We're speaking about the idols of the heart, the things that you're looking to for value, fulfillment, and worth. So let's move forward now and see the problem with all our idols. The first thing is that they give us a false Shaky identity. And if I build my value and worth on money, then I am a slave to my bank account. When it's high, then I have a good sense of identity. But oh, if my money reduces, then I have a, a shaky sense of identity. If I build my life on romantic love, then as long as there's somebody in my life, I'm confident and I'm joyful, life is good. But then you hear the breakup speech and it's not you, it's me. I'm sorry, we can't do this anymore. And that's it. Your identity is gone. Your whole life is shattered. And so all our idols break our hearts. You know, they can be taken away. Um, they change. They die. 
Tim Keller. <laughs> the first time I heard Tim Keller say this, I thought it was very morbid. But he said, you know, the day I got married, I had to look at my wife and realize that one of us is going to look at one of the other in a coffin. And so I can, I, I must love her. I must give her my best, but I can never build my life on her. I was like, oh my goodness. That sounds very dark, but it's true. He's saying, I have to realize that either one day I will bury Kathy or Kathy will bury me. And that if the person in that coffin is what I've built my entire life, then my life dies with Kathy. And he had to learn where. And that I must love Kathy, not saying love our spouses, don't get me wrong. Uh, you know, some people hear things like this and withhold themselves from people. That's not what we're saying. But that you cannot build the totality of your life and your value and your sense of personhood on romantic love. Yes, I love my wife and she knows. I tell her every single day, but um, she is not the source of my identity. She's not the source of my worth. She's not the source of my value. She is not my life. My life is in Christ. Colossians 3, 3. The problem with our idols is they do not provide the, the satisfaction they claim to provide. They lie. They're lying to us. <laughs> they lie to us. When Rockefeller was the richest man in the world, they asked him at one point, how much more do you think you have to make to be satisfied? And he said, just a little more. <laughs> and that's the rat race of all our idols. When I just make a little bit more money, I'll be fine. Right? Or when I get married, no, I'll be fine. Then you get married. Oh, when I have kids, I'll be fine. Oh, no, when Junior has a sister, then I'll be fine. Oh, no, my children must go to this kind of school, then I'll be fine. And it just never ends. Your heart keeps thirsting and looking for something, always saying, I'll get there. I'll be happy someday. I'll be content when I achieve this. And if you're looking for that in the wrong place, it never happens. And so... You know, we always think love, a romantic partner will fulfill us. But you wake up the next day and you're still yourself. <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 it's so funny. But Tim Keller, again, I'm sorry. <laughs> Tim Keller says, in a sense, and this is so hilarious. He says, in a sense, we all think we're marrying Rachel, but we all wake up to Leah. <laughs> and what he means is that, you know, you know, Jacob thought, oh, man, I have the woman that will give me all my dreams and I'll be so happy. And he woke up the next day with me. And there was just this undertone of disappointment in life because marriage was never meant to fulfill us. It cannot. <laughs> it just can't. <laughs> so I, I thought that was funny when he said, you know, we all marry Rachel and wake up in the years like, oh, who are you? <laughs> because, you know, you, you, you marry a human being and they're going to be imperfect and they will annoy you. So if you're looking to marriage for that sense of fulfillment and that they will heal all my childhood wounds and I'll be happy and, oh, my Prince Charming, you will be so disappointed when you realize that you married a human being. <laughs> so um, all our idols, they leave us thirsty and restless. All through scripture, um, thirst is used to describe this inner restlessness of the human soul that we are all thirsty, we're all restless, we're all looking for something to fulfill us. And the only thing that can truly fulfill us is God. He created us to need him, to want him, to be fulfilled in him. But unfortunately, you and I are always looking for something or someone else, always drinking in all these um, rivers that will never satisfy. And they just leave us thirsty. It's like Coke. You know, Coke is sweet and all of that, but it just doesn't quench the thirst like water. You know, so 
we all are looking in the wrong places for the kind of satisfaction that only God himself can provide. Somebody said we have a God-sized hole that can only be filled by God, but we're all trying to stuff them with social media and all these things. And so sometimes we feel this angst, we're just tired and, you know, just depressed because we're looking for satisfaction in the wrong places. Remember John chapter four, Jesus met this woman at the well and they had that conversation. And then Jesus said to her, if you drink this water, you'll be thirsty again. <laughs> Even Coke disappoints you. Yeah. <laughs> he says, if you drink this water, you'll be, you'll be thirsty again. But I have water that if you drink, you will never be thirsty again. And then the woman says to Jesus, sir, give me this water. And then you expect Jesus to say, I, I am the living water. But what does Jesus say? He says, go and call your husband. Now that's kind of like, huh? The woman asked for the water. Why are you telling her to go and call her husband? What Jesus was doing is he was revealing the false water she had been trying to drink in men. You see, this woman had been going from man to man, looking for the deep kind of satisfaction that only God could give her. Only God. And so Jesus, and, and this is how it works. This is why we're beginning here. We must first reveal our idols before we see Christ to be the satisfying one that can give us. So Jesus opens the wound. <laughs> he wanted to show her that you've gone from man number one to man number two to man number three to man number four. And now the man you're living with is not even your husband because the true husband you're really looking for is me. Jesus was saying, I am the true husband. I am the true water. I'm the true satisfaction. I am the true love that you've always been looking for. And all these men will only leave you thirsty for that deep satisfaction that we all want and we're all looking for. Um, St. Augustine, primary theologian of the, uh, I think it was the 13th century, says, our hearts are restless until they rest in Christ. That's just the truth. We get restless until we rest in Christ. We hope this class has been a blessing to you. There's so much more we have on this channel and we know it'll bless you. New podcasts will be up every week. Don't forget to subscribe to get notified when new podcasts are uploaded. Thank you for joining the study room.